and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Andy Shovel is my guest this week, serial entrepreneur. He founded his fourth business, This, in 2019. After realising that we should all be eating less meat and noticing how bad the current offering was, Andy and his co-founder Pete wanted to create a business that tasted great, impacted the planet and made it easy for everyone to switch to meat alternatives. Andy kindly gave up his time on a Sunday to chat to me and we covered topics such as how to work with a partner, how to raise money and where to raise it from, why a sense of humour is a critical trait for those working at this, why entrepreneurialism isn't for everyone and what the future of the meat-free market looks like. Andy is hugely likeable and thoughtful and I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to him about his exciting business. To kick off, if you just tell me uh, kindly a little bit more about what this is and what the brand mission is. Sure. So um, this is uh, a brand of plant-based food. uh, And so we make meat alternatives at the moment. Uh, We care a lot about hyper-realism and also about having a laugh. And our um, mission is to to put animals into retirement. Um, So we basically want to go cross across different categories and replace animal-based foods wherever we can. Um, And that's the gig. So we hear a lot from founders about starting passion projects and starting businesses based on something that you're really passionate about. For you, obviously, this business does multiple things. You're very heavily skewed towards sustainability, looking after the planet, also helping people sort of eat better and look after themselves better. Was it... Was it a very obvious moment that you combined a sort of gap in the market with feelings that you had as a consumer about a problem that existed? How did it kind of come together to create this mission based on what was happening around you? It was originally, I would say, partially mission-led for me personally. 
Um, and then it's ended up uh, in a very unexpected place, which is that I'm incredibly mission driven and I massively buy into, well, everything really that we're doing. So I gave up animal products like three years ago, but right, right when it originated, um, it was actually more of a kind of commercially led decision, I would say. Pete and I, the two founders, we'd had a meat-based uh, restaurant business, and we um, we sold that in 2016 to to a large food group. And we then determined that we wanted to get into um, sustainability for our next business. And it could have been anything. We were looking at kind of renewable energies. Or we were looking at electric cars and all kinds of stuff. And then we circle back to food because at the time, we were starting to become more aware of reasons why you might want to reduce your meat intake basically and, and animal-based product intake so we then started to look gently at what was out there and we kind of established that as meat lovers at the time which we were there wasn't really a brand in the uk which spoke to us personally in terms of marketing and comms and also in terms of product quality um they were all like massive compromises um you know if you wanted your vegan chicken it would just be such a huge step down from having animal-based chicken so we kind of thought this is interesting like it feels like a big gap for us um so we wanted to kind of weaponize everything we'd learn in our meat-based restaurant business um of how to talk to meat lovers and then and then use it for 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 this next business um and then as time went on i just got more and more bought in and now i would say i'm quite a passionate uh exponent of um you know, not eating animals, basically, and not eating animal-based products. Uh, and I've become a lot more sanctimonious about the whole thing than I was expecting. You've talked before in interviews about being this idea of being a bad vegan and a big part of your business being about uh, realistic approaches to consumer behaviour. What What is a bad vegan and what does that mean for you in terms of that consumer profile? So the bad vegan uh, thing, we, we, we coined it for our um, TEDx talk a while ago. It was before we started this, before we started this. And um, to us, it meant basically uh, the idea of people doing as much as they can. And if that was very little, then it was still better than nothing. Because we kind of identified that veganism as a sort of activist movement um, in our eyes was a little bit flawed insofar as it was quite polarizing and it was quite um, uncompromising. So um, we made this analogy of, of you know, how various religions are very inclusive, relatively speaking, versus, versus veganism. So if you just go to church once a year, you're still welcomed into the church. Um, but with veganism, if you transgress like once, you're not a vegan. So it's very exclusive. So we thought, if it's an activist movement, it's trying to it's trying to make a big change happen. Uh, it feels like a bit of a paradox if it's very exclusionary. Um, so then, the bad vegan sort of idea was was us trying to kind of promote a more inclusive form of of you know animal product reduction. Have you found it difficult launching a business in this space with the noise that surrounds dialogues around? Uh, meat consumption and various conspiracy or alleged conspiracy theories the idea of how big this is as a topic and the misinformation that consumers have is it difficult to sort of be clear about what you're doing in amongst a very sort of bloated noisy space uh, it's one of the, you know you you've I think you've alluded to one or two of the challenges like it's congested and 
Um, in terms of misinformation, I don't think I don't think that's a massively widespread problem. I've heard the odd criticism and you know the odd slightly kind of hysterical um, concern raised that isn't necessarily like very grounded in in science or anything. So so it's not really it's quite edge case, you know, like having people who are like really frightened of of um, the kind of food that we make or others make. But yeah, like for sure, the space being congested is definitely one of our like primary um, challenges that we need to deal with and that we do deal with. Were you always entrepreneurial? I know you had a business before with your business partner. And I know that you didn't necessarily have this idea immediately. You were sort of looking for opportunities. You, you referred a moment ago to some sort of other sectors that you looked at. Did you always know that you were going to be running your own business? Did, was that something that was sort of written for you? Yeah, um, definitely. L- l- like many posh kids, I had um, I had a lot of opportunities in terms of my education and confidence building and exposure to business from a young age. So I was very, very lucky and um, I'm a perfect uh, exhibition of of you know how privilege um, leads to to entrepreneurial outcomes more often, and um, but I've tried to make the most of whatever I've had, and and I um I always knew I was going to be a founder from the age of about um probably about fourteen fifteen or something, and then I started my first company when I was twenty one, which was a recruitment business. I sold that, and then started chosen bun with with the restaurant business with pete and then we sold that and then we started a climbing center business called social climbing which is still going and we have a nice nice profitable business there and then i started this with pete as well so uh, this is my fourth business yeah it's kind of like it's my thing um i really like it uh (laughs) it's good fun yeah we see a lot of um sex appeal around the idea of being a founder running a business the sort of entrepreneurial profiling has exploded. Certainly, you know, I started working with brands 14 years ago and at that time being front and centre as a founder wasn't perhaps the same way as now. There's a lot more page space and uh, opportunity dedicated to the founder. Do you think that there are unrealistic standards that are set for people who aspire to be entrepreneurs based on what looks sort of sexy and glamorous with awards and LinkedIn and other things. What's your reality of that role? Yeah. So having just said it's fun, um, immediately after I said it, I thought I probably shouldn't have said that because it's not really what I ever say normally or what I think. Um, <laughs> Cause it can be fun. Yeah. So I, I feel um, quite strongly about the issue that you're um, describing. So like um, I do think that the sort of, romanticism around um entrepreneurship is quite uh, misguided um because i think my suspicion is that um it, it, currently and over the next few years we're probably going to see swathes of young and youngish people um who are left quite disappointed and probably um financially uh, out on their ass because they um, bought into this, you know, as I say, romantic dream of being a founder, and it wasn't for them. And I, I've seen that quite a few times, actually, personally, with people who reach out on LinkedIn or whatever. Um, and you kind of speak to these people, and you realise that they don't have the right personality type for it. And there, I think there is a personality type for sure, or at least that there are traits. There, there isn't one kind of blueprint, but there are definitely traits that you that you probably need. And so I think that this narrative that's been kind of peddled over the last few years of like, you know, absolutely anyone, regardless of personality type, can be a founder. Um, just give it a crack. I think it's it's a really 
toxic message because actually being a founder entails uh, incurring enormous personal financial risk, uh, generally speaking, and also risk of your own kind of human capital, your emotional risk. Um, and you also have to make, if you're doing it properly, which I hope most people would at least try to, like you have enormous sacrifices as well, which can often be quite like, unhealthy. So, you know, I personally don't have much of a social life, to be honest, and I haven't since I was 21, so last 14 years or whatever, um, or 13 years. And, and um, you know, it affects all areas of your life, family, like relationships. And so for it to, for it to be kind of like packaged as this like, you know, fun alternate career path, like, yay, let's give it a go. It's def definitely wrong, I think. But then on the other hand, um, as I alluded to a minute ago, I really hate how elitist uh, entrepreneurship is. It's, uh, yeah, it's, something needs to be changed on that front. So I don't know how you like reconcile concern number one with concern number two. When you talk about elitism in business, do you mean the lower the risk in terms of how you're educated and what your financial situation is, the sort of easier that jump is. Pretty much. So so with any startup, and as I said, I've done four of them now, so I'm, I'm getting to grips with what's involved. With any startup, there, come, there is a time at the beginning where you will not earn a penny for minimum six, six months. And that's a really good case. Uh, normally, it'll be 12 to 18 months. Um, and so posh people... Uh, and people who come from privileged backgrounds, uh, you know, it's much, much easier for them. I mean, I'm kind of captain stating, stating the obvious here, but it, it's it's much easier for them to um, uh, absorb that that financially very challenging period, which we all have when we start a business. I mean, I don't know of anyone who's just started on, on day two, they, they immediately close a funding round and they get lots of, you know, you need to write a business plan, you need to do your research, and you don't get, no one pays you for that, you know? There's no, like, government... Uh, subsidy that you can take so um, so basically uh, that means that that of course people without any kind of financial safety net um, without any assistance with their housing situation um, all things that that privileged people tend to enjoy when they're young uh, you know it means it's impossible for them basically because they'll need to get a job to pay for that time and if you have a job then how how are you going to make significant progress during the day for your for your business it's so difficult is that something that you guys think about when you hire people i wouldn't say we're we're very snobby with with universities um and you know we have we have a um diversity and inclusion uh, sort of manifesto which i won't bore you with but essentially we, we've tried to our best to put measures in place to make sure that we've got you know candidates coming into us from from diverse backgrounds and to be honest like i would say our hiring process is quite culture-led so um, it's for me. It's more about um, do, do you possess and exhibit the qualities which we think are really important. Which, which in our case, are like um, openness, like sense of humour, attention to detail, that, those kind of things. Um, so, no, I, I wouldn't say we're you know, like looking at too hard at school or uni or anything like that. You've got a co-founder, Pete, who's not here today. What's your experience of having a co-founder? What are some of the challenges that you face and what are some of the positives? Um, so in my case, um, Pete, Pete and I are on our third business now together. And um, I think I'm very, very lucky, you know, having found uh, Pete because he's a, he's a, 
first and foremost, fantastic person with with uh, you know amazing personality traits. He's he's incredibly reliable, unbelievably bright, very understated about it as well, and he also has. Um, skills which i don't have and i have skills that he doesn't have which is the perfect co-founding equation i would say um and and i w- once had it a bit differently where my co-founder and i had quite similar skill sets and and actually it led to um friction and sort of a bit of dysfunction and it's much better when you feel when you feel no need to encroach on one another's kind of favored areas so um, I think in pretty much every respect, I'm incredibly lucky to uh, to be working with Pete. And in terms of challenges, I mean, yeah, like sometimes because you're not the supreme leader yourself, uh, you know, it, it can be challenging to push through an idea which you feel strongly about and the other person doesn't. But Pete and I have a really good, healthy um, way of, of hashing these things out and having healthy debate. So we, we've never reached an impasse where... Um, you know, it's everything's ground to a halt for a long period. It tends to be like an hour, and then we'll get through it and just, you know, keep moving. So, to be honest, like I'm, I'm a bad person to ask about the challenges because I'm very, very lucky, and I think I have a really good dynamic with Pete. Do you have any um, systems in place? Like, if one of you vetoes something, it's out, or do you have you never really had to structure things like that? It's just sort of worked. No, it's just kind of it's just kind of worked. We both have equal say. Um, we will always find a way forwards, even if we disagree. Um, and yeah, it's just um, when, you, when I sit back and think about it, the amount of decisions we've made uh, over the last ten years or so is just very significant. So, so I'm, I suppose I'm quite proud and pleased that we uh, have always managed to agree within an hour or so over the years. Well, I guess you've got a very strong shared vision and culture. So, you know, in many ways, there's complete clarity that you're both working towards the same thing so in that sense that alignment probably helps mitigate anyone going off piste Mm, yeah maybe except there are certain factors that would would almost be suggestive of of the opposite outcome because firstly i'm a nightmare so that's one and and the, the other thing is we also have quite different um like risk appetites as well um and you know he's quite conservative i'm more sort of i suppose comfortable with risk and so, like, there are certain factors which, on paper, would um, potentially lead to uh, quite a lot of divergence. But luckily, we we haven't had issues. I want to ask you about practical steps. If someone was listening who was who wanted to start a business, for, for you in terms of thinking about either sequencing or where you tagged in branding and name, how you found a place to produce the product, how you knew exactly which products to launch with all that kind of stuff how did you what were the practical steps in the early stages so so to start from the beginning we have quite a prescriptive process um pete and i for for how we try and um identify a business idea which has the legs so we um first we'll do some basic PLs, um so profit and loss and just work out you know revenue coming in versus likely costs going out and does the bit does the business fundamentally work from a unit economics perspective that was quite straightforward in this case because um you know we all know that food is produced on mass and you can make money but often business ideas it won't be that simple because they'll be you know a bit more unique and from a financial perspective um so that's the first thing we do just qualify because if the thing if the thing doesn't have strong unit economics one day then there's no point in starting um which is 
a principle that doesn't seem to be uh, taken very seriously anymore. But anyway, that's that's what we take very seriously and do at the beginning. And then we will dive in and, and do a deep dive into understanding, you know, exactly what's out there in this field in your chosen field. And, you know, what are the services or products that are out there? What are the best? What does the best in class look like? You know, unpack those brands or businesses or services as best you can. Make phone calls to them and and you know pretend you're a customer and understand what they do and all that kind of stuff. And then um, the next stage for us would be to go out and meet or speak to um, uh, founders or directors in the um, in the space. That was very important to us. So um, there's only so much you can learn from online. But you can learn a huge amount from a lady or a bloke that's that's been around the block for 15 years in that field, um, and they might tell you some some things that they've learned. You know, in two minutes, they can tell you what they've learned in 15 years. Sometimes, if they're a particularly helpful person, so that was crucial for us. Um, always, it always is crucial for us to do that. And then, if you go down that process, which in our case would normally take kind of um, oh, and we'd also speak to potential suppliers. So, if we were hypothetically going to start X business say it was this and it was plant-based food, you know, we'd go and speak to plant-based um, manufacturers who could possibly make it, see if there are any big roadblocks there. And you essentially go down this kind of, for us, it's normally about two, three months. Um, it's this kind of process of finding significant enough problems not to do it. And if you don't find one of those, then you're good to go kind of thing. So that's the beginning bit. And then as for getting started, you know, in our case, um, it was just trying to be resourceful. You know, we, we were lucky in that we sold a previous business. So we, we didn't really have financial pressure. You know, we had enough money to fund the business for, you know, relatively long time. So we funded it ourselves for about a year. Um, and we went and found manufacturers. Um, we went and found scientific consultants who could help us get best in class texture and, you know, keep us from day one at the leading edge of what's possible in terms of, you know, mouthfeel, taste, all that kind of important stuff. Um, and, and I suppose that was that was our um, that was our process, and we would just bring together a kind of crack squad of consultants or research institutes, agencies where we needed them, freelancers, and just kind of you know, in the absence of having full time employees at that time, we just kind of brought everything together until we were at the stage where we had a sort of semi compelling prototype. We had a business plan that was really comprehensive. Um, and then we went to raise money and, and that's how we really got started. In terms of mistakes that you've made, have you had to make mistakes more than once or, you know, have you made many mistakes? Have there been any absolute clangers? I'd say up until Q1 this year, we were suspiciously mistake free. And I think we executed excellently and, um, and we built a, a relatively significant business in a tiny space of time. And, and, and so if we'd have had this chat then, 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 yeah, we've been, had a clean sheet, but unfortunately we made a couple of mistakes since then. And I, sp I suppose the preeminent one or predominant one rather is probably that, um, we, we started to get, get excited when supermarket buyers would say, why don't you give us X product? Uh, oh, well, what about that kind of product? And what about this product? And we got, like, yeah, yeah, we could do that. We could do that. And then we were like, when do you want it? And then they'd say, well, we need it by you know, uh, August, we need it by September. And we were like, yeah, yeah, we could do that. And there'd be no products under development and no clear line of sight of, of, of when we could finish said product. But we said yes to about four or five things, which we hadn't even started when the promise was made. And so what ended up happening is the deadlines came 
much quicker than was comfortable and we would end up rushing product development and have to release products which weren't as good as they can be and or they could have been and so um we ended up in short we ended up over promising and under delivering which in our business you know people are very unforgiving and it was not a good idea so we're now fixing what we did and in january next year so in a few weeks we're going to be basically releasing completely overhauled versions of said products and um and rectifying our mistakes but that that was considerable that that mistake how do you take feedback online it's obviously a vocal category but inevitably you're going to get a, a mixed bag of reviews do you take that really personally or do you just realize that it's part and parcel of having a, a consumer brand i do take it quite personally um but but to be honest like what concerns me more is is that you know i hate the idea that um something's not perfect and you know i'm fairly obsessed with product quality and so you know the the few products which aren't as good as they can be um that uh you know that that's really inspired us to to keep improving and bring out these amazing new versions in january um but no it's very challenging to hear um difficult uh um you know negative feedback for sure when you put so much into something as a team and as an individual um, it's horrible, hor- horrid to hear that, you know, when people don't get on with it, for sure. Luckily, most of our feedback is positive, but um, you always have, um, when you sell enough of something, um, or if something's not perfect, then you always have um, negative feedback. But yeah, as long as we don't ignore it, that's that's the main thing. Obviously, the last 18 months has been uh, unprecedented. You've started three businesses previously, so this isn't your first radio. What has the last 18 months been like for you running this business particularly well it's kind of all we know i mean we only had about eight months or so before the pandemic in fact to be honest i think it was about seven months so the business is under two two and a half years old now it's two and a bit years old and um and the vast majority of it has been in covid so um we don't know what running this business really feels like outside of the pandemic um but during during the worst of it you know all the lockdowns and stuff um, the, the main two things that have, uh, impacted our business have been number one, um, obviously the lack of food service volume. So, uh, before the pandemic around 35% of our business was food service, maybe 40%. Um, and when I say food service, it means restaurants and stuff like that. Um, restaurants and pubs and hotels and everything. So, um, we then saw that go down to zero and everything swayed more towards retail because uh, no one was eating out. And that, that really hurt our business and hurt our growth. Um, luckily, we still managed to grow pretty quickly, but we could have done so much more. Um, and then the other thing that's really we've really felt has been the staff shortages across the supply chains. Um, and I think, to be honest with you, I, my view is it's been quite under-publicized how severe these problems have been. Um you know, we were we, we were getting to a point where our service level to our some of our retail customers was critically low. So your service level is like basically how on time and in full are your orders to your supermarket customers. And you want that number to be sort of 99.5% or whatever. You know, you want it to be basically very close to, to 100%. And, and we were at sort of like 40%, 30% for some weeks when there were no staff driving lorries, no staff making food in the factories. 
Um, and so that cost us, you know, in the millions overall. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, been some funny curveballs for sure. Do you have to slightly surrender to those problems because they're so far out of your control? You have to kind of ride it out and control the things you can, or did you find it eternally frustrating? No, I wouldn't. I would never surrender to a problem for sure. <laughs> I would always uh, fight till the last. So, so we had to, um, you know, we went on read and we put job ads out. We were trying to hire factory staff ourselves. We we, we uh, had our own team which were kind of, you know, just our office-based colleagues were going up and making food in the factories. Uh, you know, we were training them and they were like, we were hustling to, to get things done. Um, so it was, yeah, more the latter, but it was eternally frustrating and we were fighting it. But uh, lor- lorry drives is one problem you can't solve. Uh, we, we couldn't do anything about So we had to make peace with that one because it takes quite a long time to train a lorry driver. From a personal perspective, obviously you have a co-founder, so you have someone to tag in who's sort of uniquely positioned to experience some of the things that you are what was it like for you as a a culture-led business that relies a lot on sense of humor and interaction did your did your brain misbehave did you have days where you sort of thought what the fuck are we doing Or, or did you feel quite committed to the fact that this was an experience in your business journey and and it would end and there would be positive things on the other side um I think I think it was just par for the course, you know. Um, I think overall, to be honest, like even though I've just described quite significant problems, the business was still like and is still very buoyant in terms of growth, and you know we we, we were um, we were still uh, like doing all kinds of exciting things in terms of new food service partners, you know, for after the pandemic or or new retailers, new products. So the prevailing sense was always you know luckily for us like quite positive um and also pete and i've been around the block a couple of times now with startups and seen all sorts of crap um and so so you know we're sort of a bit rough and tough now i guess with that kind of stuff but uh it was you know still still pretty painful but it's kind of part of the job i want to talk to you about money um you have raised money you did a uh, cedars campaign and round in uh, 2020 in august so uh during the pandemic that would have been and you became the fastest campaign to raise more than 1.5 million on the crowdfunding platform how did you know when to raise money was it baked into your plan from the beginning and you obviously overfunded quite substantially was that always the plan was it uh, a marketing idea to do it through crowdfunding did you want kind of key stakeholders in the business as opposed to specifically institutional money or did you have you know people lined up before you put that campaign live so that so that it would uh you'd, you'd close around quite quickly what was that experience we've we've actually raised all kinds of different funds um you know from crowdfunding to institution to recently growth fund um, the business has raised 21 million or so um, from from when we launched to now, or just before we launched to now. Um, and in terms of timing, I think it was your first question, like when? How do you know when to raise? Um, I think typically you should make sure the business always has about 18 months of runway. Um, so runway, for those that don't know, is basically how long till I run out of money, till the company runs out of money. So so you never want to um, you never want to sort of uh, let it get too late. Um, and you never want to underestimate how long it takes to fundraise because in our case we've been quite lucky and you know it's been a hot we've been a relatively hot ticket so we haven't 
we haven't had very protracted like uh, rounds that take a year or whatever, but sometimes it can take a year. It can take a year and a half to raise money. So you have to be really careful. Um, and so in terms of timing, you know, that, that plays massively into it. Um, but then also of course, timing wise, you, you've got to think about what, uh, extraordinary like projects have you got coming up that might need lots of money. So maybe you're launching another territory or you're launching new products or you want to do a rebrand or whatever. So that plays into it. So it's a bit of a matrix of different factors. Um, and, um, in terms of crowdfunding, um, it was quite experimental for us, really. We, neither of us, had, me and Pete, had ever done crowdfunding before. Um, and we raised money in other ways, but it was, um, it was a first for us. So we wanted to learn and we thought it would be great to have um, you know, a bit of a community of engaged uh, or hyper-engaged, really, like customer investors. And um, the other thing we, we were excited about was that we saw it as a relatively frictionless way to raise money. Because essentially, you you put work into your campaign and then that goes live and you do have to have some anchor investment first from some, some other investors who kind of pile in before the crowd, but that that's only probably about can be a quarter or a third of the round. And then you just go live and you promote it. And, and in the end for us, at least it was quite frictionless. So I think we'll probably do it again. Um, cause, cause raising around through institutions can provide you lots of friction, uh, you know, lots of negotiation on terms, lots of due diligence, lots of answering questions and sending over Excel sheets. And it was much more straightforward with crowdfunding. People listening who perhaps don't have access to funding. I know we talked earlier about kind of elite, um, elitism with regards to access. What, what's your uh, advice for businesses who are looking to raise capital? Um, I think my advice would be that I think angels, so individuals with a spare you know, five, 10, 50 grand, I think they're probably the best way to get started, to be honest. You've got to find them. If you don't know any of them, then, then get on LinkedIn, get on the internet and try and find them. Um, you know, get people's email address, get their work email addresses, um, you know, work it out and then send them emails. Like, I think that's probably the best way to get started, if I'm honest. It's, 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 uh, it can be, can be a bit of an uphill struggle doing it any other way. Um, and I would also recommend, like, not setting crazy high targets in terms of fundraising until you have something more viable than day dot. So I think what I've seen, I, I do a little bit of mentoring for early stage younger founders than me. And um and basically one thing I've seen is is that people will say, okay, I've written my business plan. It's a great idea and I'm going to raise like 800 grand. And I'm like, well, it's quite a difficult sell, especially given your lack of track record. So why don't you raise like 25 grand from just a few individuals and then go off and make a little prototype, do a little branding for five grand, um, you know, file a patent or file a trademark and then come back to the fundraising market when you've actually got more um, substantial uh, proof points that you can show people um, and, and a bit more to buy into than just your business plan. I think people sometimes feel a bit, of a sense of like entitlement because they've written some shiny business plan they're entitled to all this investment but really i think they should go off and prove a bit more than they first expect and it will probably lead to a more fruitful uh, round for them i want to ask you about your marketing strategy i know that um you guys have had lots of press coverage lots of social media coverage lots of shares on linkedin for uh interesting, funny, clever, sort of hijacking guerrilla marketing. Is marketing 
integral to communicating your mission with this business? And how do you approach the marketing side of communicating this to the consumer? I would say that brand, which to me, to me definitely like would include marketing, is, is absolutely uh, core to what we do. And, and our, it's very, very, very heavily linked to our kind of prospects of success or failure, really. And my thesis is basically that people have a lot of skepticism about these kind of foods on the whole. So not everybody, but lo- lots of principal long-term meat eaters, um, i.e. the majority of the population, they do have uh, reservations about, about you know, meat alternatives and, you know, how they made and is it healthy and, you know, various things, uh, as well as a lot of intrigue and excitement. And so for me, the best way to disarm people's skepticism and, um, you know, the, the reservations is basically to uh, to have a laugh because that's quite normal. And, uh, you know, by, by joking around and pranking and stunting, we can basically um, – drive trial and, and drive drive people's uh, engagement and intrigue in what we're doing so for me um it's very important that we uh, are always relatively light-hearted in, in a sector where actually it's quite a somber tone generally you know it's people talking about the environmental footprint and like you know uh all sorts of very serious health concerns and my view is that basically society is luckily doing that for us um, like people are being now more educated around the problems of having too much meat or animal-based products in your diet. And so I think our job is just to be refreshingly kind of silly and lighthearted. And and at the same time, there's always a bit of an undertone with us of like shocking people into having this when they think it's meat. That's kind of our main trick. And by using those kind of shock tactics, I think viewers of our videos and and everything else like they, they suddenly think to themselves like wow this is a weird watershed moment where actually plant-based food can actually stand in and fool people if they think they're having animal-based products i wanted to ask as well something that's come up a lot on um social media and linkedin and and through some of the other people that i've um chatted to on the podcast when's the right time to bring in a high profile hire is it when you've got enough money to hire them is it to get the money is it at the point at which you realize you need someone else who's got more expertise in a certain area. I'm probably not your best uh, coach for this because I, I don't think we've I don't think we've been particularly uh, excellent at our timing. Like we've left everything a little bit too late. We've just made what I would probably describe as our first like relatively high profile hire. We we hired a guy called Mark Turner um, as our as our managing director and. And he's got lots of experience. He he was at Innocent for ten years, and then uh, MD of Camden Town Brewery and uh, and Oaxaca, the restaurant chain, and a couple of other food businesses. But other than that, I don't really have that much experience of making like particularly like really high profile hires. You know, we've got an amazing team, but I wouldn't necessarily classify any of the hires as like really high profile in that sense. And you know, similarly, our board as well. Like that that's it's got some room to kind of mature and you know get some get some heavyweight people on there one day maybe so i guess i'm not really like that well placed to advise on that the only advice i'd give is probably that we're we've done it probably a bit too late because the business grew you know we're doing about 13 14 million revenue now annualized and i hope it will be above 20 million in january in a few weeks um and we're actually like we don't have enough uh, direct level um, people in the business for sure 
Um, we've got quite a junior heavy team, um, which is great fun in the office, but ultimately like um, probably a bit, you know, we're too mature as a business to have like such a, an absence of, of very senior people. So uh, that's something we're trying to correct at the moment. We're hiring about um, four direct level people. Can you tell me what the best piece of advice you've ever been given about building a business is and, and who gave it to you? Best advice of building a business. Pete and I were lucky enough to meet Julian Metcalf a few times, who's the founder of uh, Pret-a-Manger and Itsu, for people that don't know. And in many ways, um, he's, uh, de- in my eyes, def- definitely a genius. And he's a very creative person. And um, he told us when we were starting Chosen Bun and we were just right at the beginning of that journey, he just kind of said, yeah, you have to, he was talking about brands really, whether it's a restaurant brand or a food brand, doesn't really matter. Um, he was saying that you have to give your consumers every possible chance to fall in love with your brand and not just like it. And so, you know, if you have uh, some some empty, uh, underutilized um, panel of a napkin, you know, side of a napkin or, or you know, some underside of your packaging, um, or some corner of your website that doesn't have anything on it, you know, that's inexcusable because anything that consumers lay eyes on has to be an opportunity for you to make them fall in love with the brand. So essentially he was saying have have very strong uh, attention to detail. But also it what I read into it was that you've got to make people feel something. And if you don't, it's mediocre. So in our case, it tends to be trying to make them feel amused, but for other brands, it can be other things. Um, so I think that was very good advice, which I sort of slightly, slightly um, elaborated on in my head a bit afterwards, <laughs> but I'm sure that's what he meant. But yeah, it was um, good advice. How do you keep learning? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you read books? Do you you know, meet new people? Do you go on LinkedIn? What, what's your process for, for continuing to learn? Again, I'm afraid I'm not very well placed to advise on that because I don't do any of the above. Um, in fact, I'm quite a hermit, really. With uh, I don't I don't do networking things, and um, I just I just try and keep to execution and and keep focused on 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 my job, really. Um, so I guess I learn, but it doesn't mean I don't learn because obviously you learn a huge amount through um, through your day to day job. And actually, this business, I even though I'm you know. Um, a decade and a half into startups almost I'm definitely learning the most um, uh, versus the other businesses I've I've uh, I've been in because it's such a different shape it's such a different size to anything else I've done um, that I'm acquiring lots of new skills and making lots of mistakes and you know learning a bit more about how to be a um, people manager as well because the team is much bigger here than in my previous businesses um, so so I think just learning on the job but I'm afraid I don't have a very um polished answer for that one again refreshing i think everyone sort of feels that they need to constantly be devouring devouring literature and be very sort of vocal and and available online and actually to know that you're getting your head down and and kind of getting on with the job is probably pretty sound advice um for sure the podcast is called the busyness podcast there is a standard now of busyness everyone's expected to be working harder than ever and being in the gym and you know, posting interesting stuff on social media and going on fabulous dates and whatever else is on that list. 
it's quite difficult to do. It's quite difficult to manage. You've talked about sort of sacrifice and having to really make choices about how you spend your time. And that can obviously have an impact on on social and, and other sort of relationships. If you had an extra hour in the day, what would you spend it doing? Uh, probably playing squash. I really like playing squash. Or, um, oh, I might watch something. I never really watch anything. Um, I, I, I don't watch TV really, so that would be nice to watch a bit of TV. Although I, when I eat something, I tend to do 10 minutes of of, uh, of that. But yeah, it'd be nice to watch a film. I haven't watched a film in ages. So tell me what's next. What's next for this? What's next for you? What can we expect to see in the next uh, sort of six to 12 months? Hopefully some massive food service partnerships with uh, real kingmaker um, chains. Uh, so that would be very exciting to get some of those prospects over the line. Um, new products as well. Um, we're launching new products all the time, um, especially towards the tail end of next year. Um, and so, yeah, watch this space in terms of new products. It's going to be some crazy stuff actually. Um, and otherwise we're going to internationalize the business as well towards probably the end of next year. Um, I mean, we're doing a little bit of international work, but nothing major. So that's, uh, that'll be a big milestone for us and bigger, naughtier, sillier stunts as well. It's an amazing brand. It's a really exciting time. I think you guys have really captured um, something really special. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me, especially on a Sunday. I know that lots of people at all different stages of their business journeys will be really interested to hear a lot of your candid advice. So thank you for taking the time and I, I wish you all the best with the next year. Thanks, Emily. Thanks a lot for the interest and, uh, and wanting to chat. So um, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bye.